Welcome to the Mr. TV Podcast, a love letter to shows of the past. On today's episode, we're speaking with Simon Moore, who is a writer and creator of The Tenth Kingdom, a miniseries that debuted in 2000 and continues to have a strong online following. The Tenth Kingdom stars Kimberly William Paisley as Virginia, a waitress who gets drawn into the realms of the Nine Kingdoms, a fairy tale world that's long past is happily ever after. There's an evil queen on the loose, trolls are on the hunt for a prince, and every fairy tale you have ever heard of has been brought back to its darkest European roots. Basically, the Nine Kingdoms are a mess, and it's up to Virginia and her father Tony, played by John Larroquette, and Wolf, played by Scott Cohen, to bring about a happy ending. We speak to Simon Moore about why it took more than a decade to get the show started, his previous work on Gulliver's Travels, and his hopes for a sequel some 20 years later. Simon Moore, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Very nice to be on it. Nice to have you here. Um, so for those who may have missed The Tenth Kingdom, what was the show all about? Uh, the Tenth Kingdom was um, many things, really. But uh, in essence, it was um, an attempt to uh, reintroduce uh, fairy tales, fairy stories for adults and to, um, in my mind, to reclaim the stories and and kind of look at what they originally did um, emotionally rather than what we think they did as a result of sort of endless Disneyfications and, um, uh, uh, you know, if you like, the modern take on on the fairy story, uh, which which it seemed to me didn't have a lot to do with what they were originally um, purposed for. So um, that's not a very sexy pitch. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so I didn't exactly go in and do that. From, from, from a personal point of view, that's what I kept thinking. You know, you you have a memory of these stories from when you were a kid, and you remember them being strange in lots of ways. Um, but when you reread them as an adult, or you read them to your kids. Uh, they're not really doing the same thing. So I was just trying to think, was there a way to be um, uh, a little bit more knowing and to represent these stories um, uh, for a modern adult audience at the same time uh, still uh, uh, providing some you know, mainstream uh, uh, network uh, television? So that, that was a bit of a challenge, but um, uh, in essence, it was what what happened for me was I was still living in the UK at the time, and um, but I was working a lot in LA, and you have that time difference where you always wake up eight hours before everybody else. And I was in one of those right, bookshops, yeah. and I was just walking past it. You know, there are in New York and LA, there are bookstores which are just so big. But um, uh, I came across this whole section in in the self help uh, section, which was about. Um, uh, therapists and psychiatrists using um, uh, classic fairy stories as a form of therapy. Women who run mm. with the wolves, the Cinderella complex, um, uh, you know, the, people who get trapped in ivory towers and things like that. And I just thought, this is a really interesting way into these stories. And I just had one kind of idea, which was a, a, a fairy story character uh, uh, either the big bad wolf or a descendant of uh, that wolf from the Red Riding Hood story. Um, but now uh, this person's in New York and they are, um, if you like, encountering a whole reinterpretation of who they are and what it means to be them. So that was really the first idea. I just thought um, there's this wolf and he falls in love with someone and he wants to get better. 
you know, whatever that whatever <laughs> that means. Um, so that was that was really that was really what the the essence was. I just came away with those books, and I thought that's a really neat way to um, to just be kind of ironic and funny, but also to point people to the fact that these stories have existed for so long because they're very primal and they're very powerful. Mm-hmm. I guess that, that kind of explains why uh, Scott Cohen's character, Wolf, kind of encounters some self-help, self-help books in the course of the story then. Yes, that was exactly the, if you like, that was the first sort of uh, image that I was working with. And it also gave me a line which was very provocative when I pitched it, which was to say, so there's this guy and he's half man and he's half wolf and he meets this girl and he doesn't really know whether he wants to make love to her or eat her. Mm. and again i mean people either bite on that or they don't if you like uh uh, i mean it's such a crazy idea that it either stops the conversation right there or people go oh wow what do you mean because you're taking that character who's become a little bit of a cartoon villain now nobody really was frightened of you know the wolf and red riding hood and you're pitching it in some way where for me it activates a lot of interesting ideas about men and women and how we relate, um, some of which are, are very un-PC as well, which is quite interesting, um, you know, to use the, uh, uh, the old-fashioned nature, if you like, of these stories to see whether they hold up to some kind of modern psychological journey. Right. I guess a question for for you is that you know you talked about you know these fairy tale stories you know pre Disney um, were those stories kind of part of your childhood as you were growing up? Yes, but I think only as much as they were for most people. I certainly wasn't obsessed yeah. with them, and I think even then there was a sense um, uh, that uh, you know this was sort of not as interesting as it was in previous generations. That these stories perhaps worked very well with little kids, but as people got older. Uh, they didn't have so much relevance. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's it's quite a complex thing when, you, you know, if you're doing an adaptation, usually you can just sort of point to the book and say, well, that's the book and that's me. When you're dealing with these stories, as soon as you start looking at different translations, the German version of Snow White, you know, the French version of Snow White, the, you know, you, you, you see that actually um, it, it's, it's quite a lot harder to really um, understand what's going on here and, and what the nature of, of you know, the, the, the stories really are. But I think that um, it's strong enough and universal enough in my, in my childhood and in most people's childhood that you can pretty much guarantee that most, most people in the world will have heard of these stories in some form. Right. So getting into the series itself, you're the creator of it. Um, but I had read online that it took something like 12 years, a little bit more than a decade to make the miniseries happen. Uh, what's the story there? Uh, yeah, we, I started off writing it as a movie and right. um, uh, we almost got it made. And at one point, um, uh, Terry Jones, the uh, ex Monty Python, was going to be directing it. And uh, oh. we went out to New wow. York and um, we met with... Uh, Kevin Klein was going to play Wolf and Winona mm-hmm. Ryder was going to be Virginia. And, um, <laughs> you know, we got to that very nearly stage that a lot of movies get where you start to think, wow, this is really going to happen. We're talking real people and real deals now and everything. But it didn't quite happen. And the company that had taken out an option wanted me to uh, renew the option. And everybody, including my agent, said, well, do it, do it, do it. But I just didn't feel it was going to happen. I just didn't feel that we had the right 
kind of elements to really make a film of this scale happen. And I could say that because I was a nobody at the time. And, and I know from, you know, even then I knew from experience, you just need to have certain things in place. So I took a very difficult decision and didn't renew the option. Um, and everybody thought I was a bit mad. But then I developed it for TV. And uh, initially the BBC said they wanted to do it, which was great, Which but it meant it had to be, you know, turned into a British TV series. And I did all that. And then they bulked at the size and the cost and uh, uh, a few other things of that. Um, and then uh, Robert Helmy became involved, uh, Hallmark, and I'd done a lot of things with Robert. Um, uh, I think the only reason The Tenth Kingdom really happened was because of the success of Gulliver's Travels, which was an adaptation I did a few years previously um, uh, to that for him. And I think that surprised everybody that something um, that would be considered difficult material um, uh, could be a massive, um, you know, rating success. NBC presents an astonishing television event. Amazing, a four-star achievement raves the Chicago Sun-Times. You was always my friend. Mary Steenburgen and Ted Danson. Every single thing I have told you is the truth that happened to me. Gulliver's Travels, next Sunday on NBC. So without that, I'm not sure they would have, uh, NBC would have taken a chance, but... Um, between us, Robert and I bamboozled them and told them it would be all the things you always promise things will be. Um, and so uh, we got this sort of um, great opportunity, really, just to work at this scale. I mean, I often say to people, one of the reasons I've, I've, I've done a lot of miniseries is I think it's the closest thing to a novel. It's a great form for me, a television form, because it doesn't have the relentless um, demand for product that... Uh, an ongoing TV series has, but at the same time, you can go a lot further than you can with the two-hour slot, which, you know, of course, on, on commercial TV is only, you know, an hour and a half. Um, so suddenly to have 10 hours allowed me to really push push out the, the, um, uh, the range of the piece. And also, uh, I, I think what happens quite interesting for people who don't know the piece, sometimes they watch it and people who like my other work are a bit unsure with the first two hours. But uh, what I always say to them is I was trying to get everybody who was unsure about the whole thing kind of locked into it with lots of action, lots of silliness, lots of fun, very accessible. But as the series goes on, it becomes much deeper and more serious. And that, for me, is probably the most exciting thing. And the most exciting thing about having access to that amount of television is that once you've got people hooked, you really can take them on a journey, uh, uh, which is not just a kind of breathtaking visual journey uh, across Europe, but is a journey they're really not expecting to make when the whole thing kicks off, you know, in, in New York. Uh, so that was all... Um, that was great for me. And, and I think in a way, you just can't police 10 hours, you know, uh, very easily in a way that, uh, um, let's say, a network could keep its uh, hands much more closely on uh, an individual film and the development of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, at the time, you're doing this sort of 10 hour long series with The Tenth Kingdom. I wouldn't say that there are mini series like that anymore. Is that something that was sort of locked to that time in like the 1990s and 2000s? Yeah, I think it was. Um, it's interesting for me because I've been at this a long time. So I've seen mm -hmm. the absolute pronouncements of people that, you know, 
the hour-long drama doesn't work anymore. We want half-hour dramas. You know, the the sitcom is dead. You know, no more situational. You know, uh, the procedural is dead. Everything, uh, you know, kind of comes and goes. And uh, I think Halmi was instrumental in um, introducing uh, what you might call event television. In other words, it didn't have to obey the normal rules. It didn't. It could cost a lot more. It could be more star-studded. It could be a little bit more distinctive and unusual. And the whole point was that a network would build, you know, other aspects of their schedule around having, you know, the sweeps and, and everything like that. Of course, the danger for that is that you are playing very high stakes. And if it doesn't work, um, then it's deemed to be a flop in a way that uh, uh, other programs would not be, you know, perhaps judged so harshly. Uh, but I, I think it's it, because of those sort of unusual circumstances, then you can approach the whole project in a slightly different way and, and talk to people about it in a different way. Um, you know, emphasizing, as I would say, this this sort of event thing, the fact this, this sort of special aspect to it um, one question i had is, is as a program creator I, i've talked to a, a few now for for different shows and there's different levels of involvement that the creator has in a production i mean how involved were you in the entire production of the show um i was very involved actually um mm-hmm. but not perhaps in the american way i mean what's really interesting coming from british television which is where i sort of started is that the you don't really, or you you didn't really have um, uh, showrunners, you know, writer producers in the sense that that you do in American television. Um, on the other hand, you also didn't have writers' rooms, and <laughs> so uh, there was a whole different level of kind of respect uh, for a writer's work. And and um, uh, luckily for me, I was not just making it with Robert Halmy, who I'd worked with before, but with uh, British producer Brian Eastman, um, and so. Uh, we had a very, very close relationship um, in terms of the kind of decision. So, for instance, I went out to New York um, uh, for the original casting where, you know, we cast Scott and Kimberly uh, with, the, with the directors and uh, things like that. I was very involved on the set and was a, a producer on the series. Um, so, uh, yeah, I would say that it, it was really pretty involved um, from the beginning to the end. But there is... You know, if if you get to write a 10-hour series, then in a way you do have an authorship over that that it's hard to ignore, you know. Um, so I think that uh, people were naturally um, uh, respecting, you know, my 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 job as, as a storyteller, if you like. I mean, you know, I, I think that, you know, when you see so many producers on TV shows, you know that most of them are not doing the day-to-day nuts and bolts kind of line producing. Um, and that indeed, some of them may be just there for nominal reasons or, uh, um, you know, uh, other reasons. But um, for me, I always view my job as being the guardian of the storyline, if you like, the guardian of the the tone of the piece. And... Um, uh, because of the shooting schedule, we had to have more than one director. Um, they both had different styles. So in a way, even just my communication with the two different directors, um, uh, uh, you know, I would say was probably at, at the heart of that. Um, but I also, uh, particularly with the British producer, Brian Eastman, 
um, we worked a fantastic way of, of working together on, on several projects where he would allow me to really write at the edge of ambition of what we could possibly achieve. And then when the uh, project hit the natural problems it did and we got filming delayed or weather or something like that, he would ask me really on a daily basis to cut scenes, to change things around. Um, so that was very exciting. You know, it wasn't that that situation you often get in where you write something and then you wait five years for it to be made. So even though there was a very long development process, by the time we actually got to make the series, it was very much, you know, in, in real time. And, and we were able to um, shoot some fantastically ambitious things, but also mm. have to cut a lot of things that, that, that we couldn't do. Hmm. Well, maybe we'll get into that that sort of cut stuff later on. But uh, you had mentioned uh, Kimberly William Paisley and Scott Cohen, uh, who played Wolf and and Kim and Virginia respectively. Um, so, how did you, I guess, when they were coming into the auditioning process, what was it about them that landed them the roles? Uh, I would say with something like this, it was primarily, it was first of all to do with them both realizing that it had to be played real. And okay. um, I, I tend to do this when, if, if I'm directing, I will actually tell the casting director or even leave a piece of paper outside for people who are just coming in for any part, who don't know the piece, who don't necessarily get to read it like Scott and Kimberly did. Um, I'm just saying, you know, be small and real, essentially. In other words, don't come in and do a performance. And uh, so for something like Wolf, you might think it's terribly hard to cast and it's hard to find the right person, but it's not hard to find the wrong person. 90% of the auditions in New York were, were auditions that you might see for, I don't know, Into the Woods or something. In other words, people were bringing this musical theater wolf in and you could just immediately tell, for me, it wasn't real. Similarly, the stereotype of, if you like, the girl who gets lost in the forest, the, the, the part that Kim played um, was such that we were seeing a lot of, you know, 22, 23 year old actors playing sort of cute, stunted 15 year olds in a way that they thought might be charming. So, um, uh, you know, I, I don't mean to be sort of harsh or flippant, but honestly, you do three days of, of uh, just seeing everybody in New York, and, and you, most of it is that. So, whenever somebody came in and tried to play it real, and if you think of some of the lines that Wolf has in that <laughs> series, I mean, they are insane. They are just yeah. madman's ramblings. This can't be her. What do you mean? Oh, she's succulent. What a dreamy, creamy girl. <gasps> Tastier or what? So for me... When, when Scott particularly came in and he, he, you know, some people would do something uh, real, but they'll just flatten everything out. It will be real and very small. And with this part, you had to have somebody who could get very big, but keep it real. And uh, Scott came in and he just did a few of the things that he does in the finished piece. And uh, I think, you know, there was probably four or five of us in the room and we really didn't need to have much debate about it. Um, same with Kimberly. When she came in, I just thought she absolutely understood how to make this material real. And what I was talking earlier about the, if you like, the show conceals itself a little bit. 
For me, it's about deep psychological trauma and the painful journey from becoming a child to becoming an adult uh, by encountering the dangers of the world. That is, I think, the essence of, of, of most of those stories. Um, so, of course, you need people who are attractive and charming and witty and can do all that stuff. But, but I was looking all the time for the thought of, are we going to care about these people when they finally get together? And to digress, that's another lovely thing about having 10 hours is you don't have to get the characters in bed in the first 15 minutes. You know, you really can have a very slow, very kind of unsure relationship unfolding. But what I wanted to feel was that by the time the series shifts into its final act gear, if you like, where you start to realize that there are primal kind of Oedipal forces at work and very, very dark histories and, and revelations, um, then uh, for me, I just thought, I know the audience is going to love this because these two people are top, top class actors. You know, I, for me, actually, it's not it's not that I go looking for a type at all. If I'm casting, I would rather cast, you know, the best actor in the room who's completely wrong in, in many other ways um, than somebody who looks right, who you've got to try and, you know, kind of help or teach in some way to be something that they're not. Um, so I would say it was pretty instant for me. I mean, you, of course, have all the callbacks and everything like that. But um, I, I felt as soon as we got the first... Um, uh, read through taped for both of them uh i was very sure about them and when they both came in the room together we were doing that thing that you do in the early days before you actually <laughs> shoot anything of going oh my god we've really got something good here you know i felt together they would be terrific um scott's very got a lovely mixture for me of uh, a kind of masculinity he's quite an overtly masculine man but at the same time he does all this stuff which is much more uh crude stereotype terms you know what i'll call kind of feminine behaviors he's very very balanced and nuanced at that um and i think kimberly was somebody who i had looked at her earlier work and i think she'd often been cast in things which weren't you know, going to tax her, weren't going to push her as far as she could really go. Um, uh, so, again, I just felt very comfortable about, about both of them. Um, I knew that they would, they would take the series somewhere very special. Yeah. I mean, I want to go back to the sort of 1995 series where you talked about uh, Winona Ryder and Kevin Klein in mm. the roles. Um, I mean, what were their sort of takes on the characters? Um, I don't really know, to be honest. I went for one weekend mm -hmm. and... Um, I, we had no money, but we somehow ended up having caviar in the Russian tea house in the afternoon with Kevin Klein talking <laughs> about the part. I mean, but he was wary, you know, in a way that all those people are sort of wary. I wasn't there when Terry met with Winona Ryder. I think they would have done a very good job. I think at that time, you know, again, they were both actors who had that interesting edginess and could have brought something great to it. But honestly, if, if you gave me a sort of look back now and you say, well, it could have been a made as a film with them or it could have been made with the TV series as was, uh, the TV series all the way for me. You know, I've never felt that one medium is better than another. You know, I've been lucky enough to work in, in film and television and, and theatre a bit as well. And I, I, to me, they're just different. I, I, I think now it's almost impossible to argue that 
you know, a low budget film is more impressive than Game of Thrones, say, or something like that. Television has, has so completely caught up that I think it's and blurred the lines that, it, you know, this, this interchange goes freely now. But in those days, there was still, uh, I think, a strong sense for actors and directors and even writers to an extent that, you know, you, you should be careful, choose. You know, if, if you're a movie star, don't do a TV show. You know, I don't think Nicole Kidman would have done a TV show, you know, 20 years ago. So it's, it's maybe wrong, actually, but I don't think she ever did. Um, but you see what I mean? So, so in that sense, there was a sort of version of that, and I knew it would be all about movie stars. What's interesting about Tenth Kingdom as a TV show is that the TV show is big enough that they recognize they don't need movie stars in, they don't need, you know, big TV stars, like in that central role. Now, having said that, NBC immediately panicked and wanted as many stars as possible, you know. So there are people like Anne Margaret in the show, and Anne Margaret has done some great performances, but I can't pretend I was going, oh, wow, you know, Anne Margaret's in it. Uh, um, that was just sort of a way of, of, of you know, of enhancing this event TV thing so they could have, you know, 12 stars on the, um, uh, you know, in the, in the publicity. Um, but as I said, I think if we'd had, say, Kevin Klein and Winona White write it, then they would have given us a, a particular kind of performance. I feel like I could almost see that now. Um, but uh, uh, what mm -hmm. was so exciting working with Scott and Kimberly was they were experienced, but they weren't, you know, kind of... Um, identified in such in, a, in, a, in that way yeah i guess the strange thing about um scott cohen's character is that i'd, I'd watched a show recently with with my wife and she was more familiar with his role as a character named max medina in gilmore girls yeah where he's a very measured intelligent and very calm individual and then she sees him as wolf in this and she's like what is he doing how is he so different i mean you you mentioned him being a top actor but he's like top and then over the top as a character yes indeed and um i, I think that it, it, that's in, in a way that you know talking about auditioning it's not too mm. hard because people can either do it or they can't i mean they they either see a way to to get into that um i mean wolf isn't even larger than life wolf is just some weird sort of messed up force of nature um and yet some people can do that i mean uh, uh there are all sorts of performances look at uh, uh, heath ledger playing the joker for instance mm -hmm. it's a huge performance it's not understated it's not tiny it's very 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 big but it's so real that the size of it is sort of secondary to to the intensity of it and the reality of it for me so uh, I, I think in the same way, that's just something that somebody like Scott can do. Also, if you are an actor working you know, very regularly, which he is in, in American television, pretty much all your parts are going to be, you know, detective so-and-so or, you know, a lawyer or this or that. And I've always felt a lot for actors who have this range, but don't necessarily get much chance to play it. So I think... Um, uh, particularly for Scott, I know I've talked to him many times about this, you know, he just loved, it was like being given, I don't know, a racing car or something, you know, you could really just go crazy with that. And um, there's also a kind of almost like a cognitive dissonance about the whole thing. So that, you know, when you finally get to their 
sex scene, if you like, after the nine hours, mm -hmm. it's about them playing hide and seek. So, yeah. you know, again, it doesn't allow the actor to suddenly sort of break out of their mad character and become very serious and intense for a while. It demands that, that both the actors make do something real and beautiful, but within the context of this insane childlike game. All right, all right, all right. You run into the woods and I'll cover my eyes. Sorry? Into the trees and I'll cover my eyes and I'll count to 100. Oh, are you serious? Oh, yes. Or, or you know, uh, uh, Wolf's Seduction, which is probably one of my favourite sort of section of, of, the, uh, of the whole thing in Kissing Town, when... Um, he he's he's torn so much between his inner voices that we literally hear him talking to himself, um, and then he decides not to go back and to to allow you know the characters the one thing they've been wanting throughout the series, which is the chance to go home. But instead, he piles on the idea that if he, he makes the food nice enough and the ring nice enough and the, <laughs> and, the, and the proposal nice enough, it will work. And you get that first kiss, you know, in the whole mm -hmm. series again. It, just so nice to be able to wait for something like that. And I give you two delayed kisses in Kissing Town, with, where just that hoary old sort of uh, uh, device of they're just about to kiss when something happens. And then the same thing happens again. So for the third time when it happens in this restaurant, I feel like there's a... Um, very difficult to explain, but it's like a coming together almost of... Um, psychology and a cartoon of something mm. that's obviously unreal and not trying to be real and something that's very deep and very real and that's what great actors you know can kind of simultaneously hold to at the same time i feel so i mean i mean that's something you you talked about with the miniseries thing is that there's a great chance to be able to do build up and then provide a payoff for the viewers who are watching the show Totally. And also, um, I try to be very diligent about not having anything um, superfluous at all. So in other mm -hmm. words, if you meet one character, if there's any chance that we can meet that character later, I will find that chance. I won't just introduce another character because it's so much more powerful when you start to realize that there are patterns, you know, and there are things in the 10th kingdom near the beginning, which actually pay off at the end. And uh, yeah, so, so I, I think the opportunity to do that, I think also to, you can say there's no such thing as minor characters. Um, it's very, you know, the movie version uh, of, of 10th kingdom, I'll bet you, you know, we'd be sitting in the cutting room looking at something absolutely hilarious that one of the so-called minor characters was doing, and it would be cut out for more close-ups of the two heroes. Because, you know, film naturally, it, it's very, very hard in films to do true ensemble storytelling. But it's not only possible, I think it's um, uh, very desirable in the miniseries to do that because you take the weight off. We don't really want 10 hours of just looking at one person's face. You know, so so in a way, it, 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 it operates... Um, there are lots of spin-off benefits 
in that you can get somebody to do a part that they wouldn't have done in the movie, if you like, because they can see it's substantial and they get a great bit. I mean, I, I, I you know, I had a, a weird idea about Snow White, which is that I didn't think she should be, you know, skinny and beautiful and Botoxed. And, you know, they offered the, the part to Cameron Mannheim and, um, it's my understanding. She said, yes, I'll do it without even reading the script. And I'm not even vaguely insulted about that. I just, I get it, you know, because so would I, I would just go, that sounds fun. They, she said, what's the scene? And they said, well, it's a seven minute dialogue. Uh, you know, and that's, again, that's just the miniseries. You can't do that in a movie, you know? Mm, yeah. So, so, you know, it's like, it's, it, it, it offers me a chance to really ensnare some great people and give them, you know, a, a, a showcase, which is not going to be cut out, which is not going to be minimized and which is not going to be um, uh, kind of shoehorned into a position of unimportance. Because what happens for me with the miniseries, which I really love, is that you kind of drift a bit. So halfway through, we think, wow, we're thinking about different things maybe than we were to start with. And you can just stay with something for a while um, uh, before you move on. It doesn't have quite the same relentless demands of narrative that the the, the two-hour mm-hmm. movie does. Well, I mean, along with the show's protagonists, who we've talked a little bit about, there's also the show's antagonists. You're talking about like Diane Weiss as the evil queen, mm-hmm. Rucker Hauer as a huntsman, and Ed O'Neill as a troll king. Uh, how did they get involved? Well, I mean, again, three three great actors for me. Um, uh, you know, totally thrilled. Um, what happens, which I hadn't, I, I sort of, I really hadn't done much um, work for American network television before, and I mm-hmm. didn't realize one thing, which is I when we first started casting it, I started suggesting names, and um, we get this response from NBC. No, 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 we don't think they're right. We don't think they're right. And I'd be like, what? They're really good. What's the problem? And then I suddenly realized that from their point of view, they had spent a lot of time and money building up certain stars who were then their NBC stars or ABC stars or CBS stars. And so what I realized the deal was, was pretty much, you know, within that pool of people, um, then we're very open but we don't want to take somebody else's star, you know, and sort of cross promote their program, I think is, it was the sort of logic behind it. And as I said, I was just sort of naive, really, I hadn't understood that. Um, so with some people, um, with, uh, um, you know, Ed O'Neill, for instance, uh, John Larroquette, that, that was very much part of their, their thinking. Um, I wasn't too concerned about that to be honest because I knew that they were both very very good actors with Diane Weist I can't tell you how excited I was <laughs> um, uh, I don't mean any uh, disparity to to uh, any uh, disparaging to uh, other actors but you know she is just a fabulous fabulous actor so if that the part of the evil queen which is very difficult to record because you're doing lots of little bits you know she's spending a lot of that film looking at mirrors talking to people um you know if that was in the hands of somebody who wasn't very good 
then I think the whole piece would have um, fallen apart a bit. And the fact that she could hold together, again, that psychological kind of uh, integrity, if you like, meant that when you get the big revelation in the last third of the piece about what it's really about and why they're really there, then um, I I found her very, very moving. I mean, I I just, I I totally adore her. I would cast her in anything, anytime, anywhere (laughs) at the end, you know. Uh, well, we'll get more into the uh, the themes you're talking about a little bit later on. But the, the one thing I want to um, uh, get into now is that, you know, on set, there are two uh, directors who are working on the show. What was it like working with them on the show? Um, it was very different. Um, uh, David was, I think both of them were accustomed to um, directing their own shows. Um, perhaps mm-hmm. David had worked more. Um, like on Star Trek and things where doing episodic television. But um, I think they both didn't like the idea of um, having to um, work sometimes on the same episode. It was just very difficult logistically not to get into that with all the travel and all the characters and everything like that. Um, But uh, I felt that the advantage of having two directors was that we could slightly cast for different skills um, what David has, which is really fantastic, is his sense of composition is it, it, it's, it's really excellent. And I love every rush is every piece of rush I see. I know immediately it's David. It's the way he forms things. I, I had slight disagreements with him at the beginning because I was worried that he was making it too broad and he was encouraging a kind of you know that the trolls were Klingons sort of things and doing a lot of uh, kind of behavioral stuff um so that was the only thing that I I sort of had a disagreement um uh, with him and and I felt that when um Herbie came on um uh, I know Herbie was 70 when he directed um uh, uh, you know those episodes so again it's quite unusual to to cast somebody uh, of that age for for such a demanding shoot um but he grounded everybody beautifully um, in a kind of um, uh, reality. Uh, and so I think between the two of them, you know, David kind of pushed the production values and really got the most out of all the locations. And Herbie, um, uh, uh, for me, maybe got the most out of the uh, actors. And it, it just so happens that... Uh, um, uh, David did most of the first half of the show and, and uh, Herbie did more of, of the end. Um, but I, I was very happy with both of them. Um, uh, as I said, the word, that's my, my only concern was the tone right at the beginning when we were first getting the audience. Um, I, 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 I just wanted to tell people it's not all going to be kind of crazy, shouty, over-the-top stuff. Um, but I think between them, they made a, a really great balance and um, again, for me, I've been used to working on you know, some relatively low-budget British television, uh, and so to be able to work at that scale and have proper sets and everything, and, and, and most of all the locations, you know, I, I think one of the reasons why the series doesn't look too dated um, is that it's um, all about uh, the locations, and in the same way I've been talking about the reality of performance, there is a reality of... Um, imagery for me which is that people shoot those shows in the studio most of the time you get a few carriages going through the woods and a bit of 
you know, malarkey somewhere. But the idea of going on a proper journey, and remember, you know, this is significantly before Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and all those other things are being filmed. Um, they do exactly the same thing for me, which is that when you set off on that adventure, you're really going physically on an adventure. We're not cheating. We're not giving you locations, you know, five miles around the studio. And I think that that, again, has a deep sort of psychological effect on people. Um, for instance, that the, I had not intended to do it, but we're in New York and then we go straight to the prison and we spend quite a long time in the prison uh, and depending on what, how the series is cut up, but film two, basically. Um, and I was always like, oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. Because there's some moment where... They follow the mirror and they go off and it was like in Austria, I think. And it is for me a sort of Lord of the Rings moment where you just go, okay, even if you don't like the series so far, you've got to admit this does look magical. Uh, You know, and later when they get to Dragon Mountain and, you know, they really went up to those places, you know that they're not faking. It's not in a studio. It's high up. You know, it's it's got that scale. Um, so that was something that both the directors were very keen to do and, and indeed the, the producers as well, to just keep giving it that sense of um, mm-hmm. uh, of existing in a real world. I was going to say, I, I, I'd watched the show when I was a lot younger and on TV and then on a VHS copy that I currently am actually looking at right now. I have it on my desk here. <laughs> um, but when I rewatched it recently kind of in, in HD, I looked at the locations that you were in, especially after being in New York where you're really shooting in and then shooting in that castle in Austria, you realize that the show isn't just, you know, it, it has production value. It's really, really lavish. And I mean, some behind the scenes, uh, you know, features talking about the show talked about how they had, you know, 4,500 costumes and you travel to London, France, and Austria. I mean, was though, were those kind of production values typical at the time or were you working with more money than most productions? Oh, a lot more money than most productions. I mm-hmm. mean, it was, um, I'd also, uh, I, I, I wonder, people might often wonder why do American productions always want to shoot in England or, you know, somewhere mm-hmm. abroad? You would think, well, can't be that much advantage and actually shooting outside in london is pretty grim because the skies are usually gray and everything like that (laughs) i think one of the reasons they do it is because they can escape and there's less interference and so um part of it is that you sort of get on the road with one of those shows and then you've got a lot more um kind of personal freedom uh to realize things but I, i i've always felt that um Television is a very visual medium. And um, to start with, it wasn't. And uh, I I think the reason it became more obviously a visual medium was actually to do with technology. It was probably to do with widescreen TVs. Because if you think about it, the square frame of traditional television really allows you to to fill that with um, a mid shot of somebody's body or a close up of their face and shoulders. When you have widescreen, or even, you know, CinemaScope, then you have to include the environment. And that was something I remember talking about with Tenth Kingdom early on. I said, please, 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 let's not have one shot from Germany, which is just somebody against the wall. You know, what's the point of going to Germany if we're going to shoot that or, you know, shoot it all very tight? So I, I, I think that that the whole series has a sort of um, call to adventure, if you like, um, which mm-hmm. both the directors we, we talked about really, you know, realized very well. 
Yeah, I mean, one thing about that call to adventure is that the actors in the show were asked to travel for about six months on on the shoot, um, which seems like a, a quite a long time for them to be off shooting a, a TV show. Was that ever any you know was that tough for them to do? I think it was very tough, and I think that they, um, especially the the you know American cast members. Um, mm-hmm. They didn't like it, <laughs> and I, you know I can see why. Really, um, it, it, also it was a strange hybrid between a kind of you know top level American show, and also, uh, uh, and this is partly why people shoot movies and TV shows in Europe is because there are economies you know that you can do from shooting there. So it wasn't super luxurious for them either. And I think particularly. I don't know, but say somebody like John Larroquette, who perhaps been used to shooting um, uh, sitcom for many years, that's a very different life when you're being driven into the studio and you do your hours and you do your show and then you come out climbing up a mountain, you know, getting wet next to a waterfall, shoot, shooting for 14 hours and then traveling to shoot the next day. It wasn't at all luxurious in that sense. Um, and uh, of course, you know, whenever you have really great producers, they're trying to put the money on the screen and and not spend it, you know, in hotels and things like that. So I had sympathy uh, uh, for those people, but I, I also think that it was unusual and different. And if somebody had given me that job and said, um, you, you're going to go to those castles and those waterfalls, and, and I, 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 I think it was also um, a kind of an amazing job for them. But I definitely noticed, because I was actually writing something else during the, the uh, foreign shooting, so I would dip in every so often or go to the studio or something like that, and I could see about two-thirds of the way through that, you know, that they, they were just getting <laughs> fed up with <laughs> the whole thing. But, hey, that's, you know, that's showbiz. I got fed up at some yeah, yeah. point writing and rewriting it over 12 years you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah um one other set that i thought i'd talk about because it, it was featured on that sort of behind the scenes featurette that i'd watched is that you know we talked about acorn um we haven't mentioned uh, warwick davis's role mm-hmm. in the show yet as acorn um but he has a scene where he is in a swamp which was to me as a kid it looked like a real swamp yeah but then me as an adult realized that it's a lavishly produced and put together studio yeah. environment. Um, I mean, you had some studio environments that were put together. And um, I mean, were there any ones that really kind of stood out for you in, in terms of their um, design? Uh, that's just about my favorite. The, uh, yeah. the disenchanted forest in the swamp. And uh, uh, um, uh, because, again, what, what they did was they built it at scale. It's. It's. It, I would much rather have three sets at scale than ten sets that are sort of only two corners or something, because there's a certain point where you can move the camera um, uh, in those places, and it does trick you into feeling that it's real. If you look at the swamp scenes, it doesn't look real at all. It's. It's green lighting, and it's very weird. It doesn't look actually like a a real place, but the scale is such that it. It has its own reality, and so um, I do. You know, when you're a writer on location or on going to sets, it's not usually very glamorous because usually the reason you're there is that somebody wants to cut something, or they're unhappy with their dialogue, or something's not working, or you know something like that. So it's not usually just, "Hey, come and we'll all tell you how wonderful you are." But 
I'm always taken aback because I've had in my mind for such a long time the swamp as a sort of, you know, probably not as a location, but as a relatively modest thing. And I walked into Pinewood and, um, you know, there's one of these huge, huge sound stages like they shoot for James Bond films or something. And then I got that little kid thing. Um, And it took me back actually to the first thing I ever uh, had made. I was at film school and um, uh, I wrote a pilot for a TV series um, called Inside Out. And um, it was one of those things where I sort of turned it in on Friday and on Monday they said, um, another series has dropped out. Can you write it straight away and we'll shoot it. We actually have a crew and studio and things like that. So I wrote six episodes, my first TV ever in six, you know, like I just wrote one, oh shooting the next one, shooting the next one, shooting the next one like that. And I remember going on set and I'd just written some big wedding. And if you're at film school, you know that, you know, nothing you ever write in a film in a student film gets made. You know, you borrow somebody's sofa or, you know, try and get two people who are walking past to be extras. And I walked there. And they'd actually done everything I'd written down. And they put all these tables out and all these costumes and all these vehicles. And there was a disconnect for me where I just thought, but I, I just wrote it. You know, it's, it's like <laughs> it, it was it, it was a real like, you know, like being a little kid. And somebody had said, Simon, today mm-hmm. we've made your dream. And I got I, that's a long winded way of getting back to Tenth Kingdom. But there were a few points where I saw in the rushes. Or, or I, you know, of a location or a set like the swamp, and I just thought, oh, this is, this is so much better than I thought it would be. It was, it was truly thrilling. And I think there's another aspect to writing which is very difficult to talk about, and people don't usually talk about it. But part of your job is to be inspirational, and if you can get, you know, it's like when I saw early on. Uh, Scott doing some of the wolf speeches and I saw the crew laughing and I could see that there was a buzz around the madness of it and that people who maybe weren't that interested were sort of just doing their job. They were getting a bit more sucked in, you know, they were, they were liking it a bit more. Um, It's kind of like that. And, and the reward as a writer, I think is when you see the, you know, the production designers or the cinematographer or someone has just bust a gut to make it really (laughs) amazing. Um, so the swamp thing for me is is great. It's also um, it's maybe a point tonally where um, everything I'm trying to do with the series comes together. In that is very serious. Our two characters are being strangled to death. It's you know they're running out of time. Uh, uh, there's no rescue, um, uh, and at the same time, it's the series is going for its greatest sort of level of lunacy. You know you've got three little. Um, uh, uh, pixies who lead them into the swamp, but it ends up with the magic mushrooms, you know, yeah, swaying backwards and forwards, singing Procol Harum's, you know, White as Shade of Pale. And, you know, those are, that's like, um, they're like the moments I'm trying to hit, right? So it's a moment which is, it, it's ridiculous. Smells like the real thing. It is the real thing. It's one of the essential ingredients of a mushroom omelette. I'm not going to get caught that way. Mushroom omelette, nice glass of Chateau Swamp, little snooze. All right, knock it off. But at the same time, you're actually thinking, come on, Wolf. And out of that, you know, the end sequence of that is Wolf running 
to rescue them, specifically to rescue Virginia, I think. But um, <laughs> <That's so funny. laughs> yeah. but let's let's not tell Ed. That. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, you know, it's it's that really. It's it's when all those elements come together, and um, uh, usually in these type of programs, one talks about the acting and one talks about maybe the writing, but and even the directing. But not so much the other elements, and and I think that that swamp sequence is something which it would be ten percent of what it is if if we just had a sort of regular dull set. Yeah, well, I mean, this is a good chance to sort of hop into the show's themes a bit, and one thing I wanted to get into um, before we talk about uh, Ten Kingdoms themes is that you know you'd mentioned Gulliver's Travels uh, with Ted Danson before mm. this. And that was a, you know, a sort of a, a, you ventured into the satirical fantasy realm in there uh, using Jonathan Swift's novel as inspiration there. I mean, what did you take from that experience creating a sort of fantasy-based TV show? What did you take from that into the Tenth, King, Tenth Kingdom's themes? Um, well, Gulliver's Travels was interesting because when I was first um, uh, offered it, actually offered the chance to pitch for it, um, I right. could see that it was going to be uh, quite a big series, which appealed to me. You know, I was, I was really keen to find some way to do um, a piece of fantasy. Um, but I was also filled with dread a bit because the book I knew, uh, I think I'd sort of half read it before, um, and I knew how dark it was and what it was really about, which was this sort of biting, almost hateful view of humanity. And yet what we'd ended up with was a very similar, if you like, to the kind of um, distillation of the of the fairy tales, uh, that we'd ended up with something about big people and little people. Um, and if you look at, say, the recent Jack Black movie, you know, Gulliver's <laughs> Travels, you could see exactly, yeah. they just couldn't get over that problem. So I was like, okay, here's my pitch for it. Gulliver's Travels has been done to death. Everybody knows what it is, but they've only ever done two books. They've only ever done The Big People and The Little People. Nobody has ever done outside theatre productions, I think, um, uh, awful books. So that interested me and in how I could weave that together. And in the original book, it's Four Voyages, uh, where he goes away and comes back. And again, this idea central to Tenth Kingdom came up of an epic journey a journey which would not be over until he finally came back. And um, I was looking at a way to bring all this together and not just add um, some completely made-up element to the story. And uh, I was doing my research on Swift, and it said a month before he started writing Gulliver's Travels, he went to Bedlam, which was one of the first uh, uh, mental hospitals if you like it was really more like a mental prison um uh, uh and indeed uh people used to go along on sunday and pay a penny to sit and watch the mad people you know um outside and i had this idea of him looking at these people uh, who were supposedly mad and i thought wow, what happens if we say that Gulliver has come back from his travels and nobody believes him? And now he's talking about little people and talking horses and all that. So I took that real incident um, and used that as a framing device. And um, that was very attractive to the people because the other problem with Gulliver's travels is you simply can't shoot at all. 
it would cost like $500 million to just shoot the door <laughs> like that. So we had to have some right. framing device. And my framing device was he's stuck in prison and every so often a little person's going to appear on his shoulder or something. And that can take us into a bigger scene, you know, in a memory from, from where he's come. So in other words, I think that I managed to give the audience what they were expecting, which is, you know, big Gulliver tied down by lots of Lilliputians and all those sort of classic moments, but at the same time, take them somewhere where they hadn't been before. And that was a very useful template to then uh, look at uh, the fairy tale world and come up with a similar idea, which was, you know, if you like, a psychological journey. So the way that I I persuaded them that something like Gulliver's Travels could be relevant rather than just kind of amusing and a spectacle um, was by putting at its centre the idea that uh, uh, Gulliver had to prove his sanity uh, in order to be free of you know prison and and these memories and to use the whole book like a kind of a flashback uh, uh, device for that reason. So it was it was very useful to have that, and as I said earlier, it was most useful just in that it gave NBC some confidence that um, you know it was worth investing this much money in something that wasn't set in a hospital or a courtroom. Right. I guess when it comes to the the Tenth Kingdom, um, at, at least when you talked about the scenes in New York at the very beginning of it, especially with the scenes where the trolls show up, who are you know some of my favorite characters in in the series, you know initially the characters show up and they're kind of like silly, a little ridiculous. They're running around New York, and you know they're not that threatening of, of characters. They're tough, but they're not threatening. But as the series goes on, you really start to realize that there are real dangers to these characters. I mean, I remember there's a scene very close to the end of the series where I believe John Larroquette's character actually gets stabbed by one of the trolls. I, I think Bluebell stabs him at some point. So, I mean, when I was watching the show, and I'm about nine years old at the time when I first watching it, you know, there is a, a kind of darkness to the series mm. in it where it initially is very innocent looking, but at the same time, you know, there are, you know, moments where people die. It's, it's certainly not a kid's show. Um, how did you balance that in, in terms of your writing? When, when people talk about family entertainment, what they normally mm. mean is the adults bored out of their mind, finally having found something their children can watch. And for me, if something is going to be called family entertainment rather than a children's show, then it has to have a second language. You know, if you if you like go through the adult version of Tenth Kingdom, you'll see it's strewn with references to taking drugs mm. and sexuality and you know murder and all kinds of stuff. What is that? It's just my tail. Your tail? <laughs> what? Well, it's not very big at this time of month. It's just a little brush. You've got a tail? Yeah. So. You have succulent breasts. I don't go on about them all the time, do I? Why did you touch it? But it's not a hope in your face, and it's not presented in such a way that I think it's problematic. So I've had many people over the years write letters to me saying, the thing I love most about this series is I sit down 
my grandmother likes it, I like it, my daughter likes it, or my son, or whatever, <laughs> you know, and they like it for different reasons. Um, so uh, I have no problem at all with that. I, I actually think that's sort of what our um, our job is, you know, uh, as writers, to, to, to think of all the audiences that are watching it. Um, uh, to me, both Gulliver's Travels and The Tenth Kingdom are very, very mild versions of the original story. And I imagine, you know, sitting in a dark hut in Germany, you know, with one candle, hearing the original stories, which were very, very much more bloodthirsty. Um, and they were, if you like, very adult, certainly a very serious. It brings up another question for me, which is that do we infantilize, you know, our audiences? Isn't the point of drama that you show children things which absolutely terrify them because you can then reassure them and show them that this is a piece of fiction. You know, at some level, that's that's the whole point of them. I mean, I, could, I don't believe that, you know, the, the stories endured because they were so sweet and charming. If you look at the original, you know, endings of any of the sort of what you would call the classic Disney fairy tales now, they're so dark. I mean, uh, um, you know, the bad characters being made to dance in iron slippers, you know, until their feet fall off and things. I mean, tremendous cruelty. So, um, first of all, I think children are much more robust. I think they love that stuff. I mean, look at things like Stranger Things and everything. You know, when, when people get it right, they see that there's absolutely an appetite for um, for encountering dark and dangerous subjects and indeed sexuality as well i would put in as you know if it's done properly um uh, that's part of the point of it um but i i I also think that it's it's fun i mean there are just it it, it goes right down to the language for me so suck an elf or what in the fairying forest these are just phrases where somebody i mean i don't know whether you could get away with what in the fairing forest now but the reason i like it is because you can't tell me why it's inappropriate right <laughs> there's nothing actually wrong with those words right but we all know when we put them together in a certain way that for an adult audience they're kind of having fun so i, I that's what i was trying to do always with scenes imagine both children watching the scene and adults you know gotcha we are about to enter the underworld. Prepare yourselves. This isn't the underworld, you idiot! This is where we came in. Magic indeed! How did she do that? Ah, suck an elf! Oh, this isn't really a question that you have to answer, but did you care about like talking about spoilery kind of stuff now? Uh, no, I don't mind. I think after no, 20, okay. 20 okay, years, yeah, I was gonna say, allowed, yeah. to spoil. I, I avoided it just in case you didn't want it, but uh, now we can. Yeah, I guess spoilers are fine. Spoil away. Yeah, yeah spoil away. Um, in the series, we do watch Virginia sort of go on her hero's journey into sort of you know self-discovery. I mean, there's a scene early on where Wolf tells her, you know, the reason why you're addicted to the troll king's, you know, invisible slippers is because you want to be inv- invisible. She doesn't want to be the hero of her story. And, you know, throughout her journey, we start to learn that she has a connection to Diane Weiss' character, uh, which is particularly complex. And you had done a, a sort of a fan Q&A where you said that you didn't really want to interrogate Diane Weiss, the evil queen's character, through a psychological lens. Um, 
I mean, did that at the time kind of clash with that sort of, you know, law and order style sensibility of like, you need to be able to fully explain her motivation for what she had done? Uh, yeah, very interesting point. I can't remember exactly what uh, I, I said in that uh, answer, but I know that mm-hmm. I was always torn between wanting to satisfy an audience, especially over that length of time. If you say something, no, it's your husband, or you know, it's actually you are the daughter of the king. You know, you have to you have to kind of deliver on that. I think at some level. On the other hand. The fairy tales are not about psychological reality. That's what's so kind of difficult. And that's, I think that returns me to the very first thing I said about walking through that bookstore and seeing that they were being repurposed, if you like, for psychological growth, that it's possible to look at the little girl lost in the forest and see that as some kind of psychological metaphor and the, and the things that happens to that girl before they... They, they find their destiny or the way out. Um, so I think really I'm kind of arguing for having your cake and eating it, that, that I think that you need to be attentive to the fact that the audience wants some psychological explanation. On the other hand, I just never felt there was an explanation. And I hope that's not an evasion. I simply think that they... Right. You know, there's a certain point where I can bring those ancient stories into the modern world but I'm not sure that I can just sort of cut the crusts off and then they'll fit neatly into our psychology. And in a way, you know, those stories shouldn't be reduced to a 20th, 21st century psychological package because that's too temporary compared to the enduring values. So in other words, with something like the the central revelation that, um, Virginia is not there, um, not having this adventure just because she happened to hit a dog, but because of, you know, if you like one of the the real central themes of the piece, which is our world meets a world where destiny is absolutely real, where free will and chance are not really occurring much at all. Um, It's more like that. So in that sense, I can't just sort of take all the psychological uh, bits I like from our modern world and explain that, I think it has to be in some way satisfying that you realise, how can I explain it? This is difficult because uh, I think when you get to the core of what pieces are too, the whole point of it being 10 hours is I I can't give you one sentence, but let me express it this way. There's a point where for me, I start to wonder if Virginia's making the whole thing up. If it's a fantasy about if it's almost not, I don't mean a whole series is a dream, but I mean that there is a dreamlike quality to finding, you know, you've escaped your dull life, but of course you haven't escaped. You're gradually being dragged back towards the thing you've run away from. And in that sense, it's both real and magical. Um, I guess the, the thing that she's sort of running away from, at least, um, uh from the revelation at the end of the show is that, yeah, the evil queen is her mother, but her mom had also sort of run away from her life in the real Mm. world um, after attempting to uh, drown Virginia in in a bathtub. And it's it's not really interrogated in the show past John Larroquette's character saying that she was crazy. Um, 
but I mean, it, it, there's this moment where um, I think Virginia starts to remember that and she actually has a conversation with Tony's character. And it is, to me, it really does sell that there is trauma that she had forgotten there. She was trying to drown me. Uh, what do you mean? That's not true. If I'd have come home a minute later, you would have been dead. When you were writing that scene, you know, how, how pivotal was that moment for you? What I try and do when I'm writing is, is not necessarily answer the emotion of a scene as it arises. I think mm-hmm. that happens a lot in television and it's, it's not always the best way to do it because it's not true of the way we react in real life. So you're right, you have the sort of information, if you like. She's processed with this idea of, oh, my God, everything I knew is turned on its head. But the story she has is when she's walking um, uh, uh, just after the revelation um, uh, through a field with her father, and she tries to explain to her father how she felt. And she comes up with this story. It was like I was in a train crash, um, but no one came to rescue me. And... uh, that again is a you know that's where I would say like earlier that's the reason to have somebody like Kimberly there because she just gives all the emotion that she's held back for so many hours in there and what appealed to me is that uh, uh, Tony her character and also I would suggest John Larroquette as a person is extremely uncomfortable in that very emotional area of acting so his awkwardness he he fails her as her only other available parents at the most important time in her life. Well, she was the kind of, of woman that, that everybody was drawn to. I was, I was just like everybody else. I was, I was crazy about her. I couldn't believe it when she said she'd marry me. No, that I, I, I knew she was sleeping with other guys. She wasn't even discreet about it. And I know that you don't like hearing that kind of stuff because you just want to hear how nice she was because she was your mother. Well, the truth is that she walked out on us and probably never gave it a second thought. Well, I don't believe that. And that felt real for me. And I've had a lot of letters from people who specifically reference that scene and talk about that feeling. Um, and, and this is a real mystery for me, actually, because as a man, I wasn't aware that I was writing a story that would resonate so powerfully um, with this certain kind of uh, woman and girl. But uh, I literally have, you know, a, a filing cabinet with hundreds of letters that, that, that people wrote just saying that this worked for them. How it works and why it works, I, I, I don't completely know, because I know that you you know, it's a very interesting question you're asking because at some point we kind of demand a psychological explanation of something, but I don't think that's necessarily the deepest truth. You know, there there is also um, an emotional revelation, an emotional connection, and for me that does happen in that scene, and I find it emotional when I, I, I watch it myself, um, and I, I don't I tend to watch my work and say, oh, it's so amazing. <laughs> but I'm caught out by it because it's, it's, it, you know, it's about, it's as, as much about what isn't said as is said. And um, sometimes if I, if I teach writing or I'm working with somebody who's not particularly experienced, I, I find it very hard to explain this. Like, don't tell me the answer. Don't cheat, but don't tell me the answer because that makes it less rather than more. And that space where 
you know, for some people, I can understand. They'd watch The Tenth Kingdom and they'd go, well, you know, you said that she tried to murder her daughter, but we never find out why. And, you know, maybe that would be interesting. But but maybe if I'd written that three-page, you know, scene, then we would have cut it out because at the same time, I there's there's very little explanation in the original stories. Yeah, You know, that's interesting. Again, they're, they're dealing with something slightly different, which is, you know, you walk through the forest and you find a magic boot or something, right? There's no, there's no, well, why did you deserve to find the boot? Or why did the boot, you know, eventually you can make some sense of that. But I don't think that um, it works in the same way that, let's say it was a courtroom psychological drama and where there was this missing piece of the puzzle. And then suddenly, you know, the, prosecution lawyer or something turns on Kimberly's character and goes this 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 and then you know maybe there is a sort of forensic form of uh, storytelling where you you demand that and you would feel very disappointed um but this is not really a murder mystery you know story it's it's it so i i don't know whether that answers your question or not but i i feel comfortable that we're we're mm-hmm. sort of slightly in both camps i would say Maybe if you explained it entirely, it may have taken a little bit of the magic away. So yeah. I think maybe that's that's maybe a way of looking at that. Um, one 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 last question about uh, the characters and, and sort of the themes of the show, and then we're going to move on to sort of the, the reaction to the show at the time. Is you know John Larroquette's character of, of Tony is is kind of he's interesting because he seems to just sort of throw a wrench into all the fairy tales, basically. Like he just sort of shows up as like a person who's like um, sort of uh, extremely greedy, very kind of unthinking, um, kind of a, a chaos agent at times, a little bit in the fairy tale world. Um, how are you hoping to use his character when you're writing the show? What what was his sort of utility while you're writing the script? Well, one of the great things about doing a group, an ensemble show, if you like, a group show, mm-hmm. is that you there's a rhythm for the scenes which i could probably still find you know quite quickly now which is that i can see the four of them if you include you know the dog prince wendell walking along anywhere and anything that happens i can kind of imagine instantly how they're going to react you know wolf will be extremely overexcited about it you know uh, uh virginia will have this super cautious response to it you know uh, uh wendell will have a response based on him being king and nothing to do with anything that's going on um but then you have this this space for a sort of grumpy everyman and um i think john particularly found it a very difficult part to play at one level because tony is a very weak character And as you said, you know, when you list his virtues, they're not many. He's not supposed to be a virtuous (laughs) character. And he actually, uh, even later, when we get to the point where his daughter really needs him emotionally, he's not there for her. But if he was there for her, it would feel like a convenient movie of the week moment for me. You know, this, I think, again, this is what makes it a bit more real. Now, after all that time, it is quite fun when Tony gets his moment and, you know, fights back and and does things which are um, powerful. But his role, um, in a way, his unchanging role is always to be, um, if you like, the most modern character. He is us and it pricks the bubble of um, fairy stories. And I've been interested in that sometimes um, there have been like a married couple who really love the series 
And I know pretty much the man's always going to like Tony's character. You know, it's like, because he doesn't identify mainly with, you know, Virginia's journey and everything like that. But many times I've been surprised where people go, I love Tony and I love the trolls, you know, and I'm like, oh, God, they feel to me like the not one dimensional, but they feel like they are there uh, almost for uh, structural reasons, right? It's like Mm -hmm. a piece of architecture where so Tony can always reply and and it's a great way of um, uh, having humor there all the time. So, for instance, when they break into the castle at the end and we know that. Virginia's, you know, on a destiny to stop her mother, which might mean kill her mother. It could be super serious. And then you have that scene with the frog that says, you know, (laughs) one door leads to, you know, freedom, one door leads to terrible death. And I can then have Tony be us. And instead Mm -hmm. of guessing like the others do, he says, why? Why do you have a world? where one door leads to freedom and the other door leads to a horrible death. What kind of sick people are you? And that's, <laughs> you know, for me, that's just tremendous fun. It's it, mm-hmm. because it, it, like it lets, it lets the audience in on the joke, you know, and then he picks up, you know, one of the frogs throws it through the door. It <laughs> explodes. And he says, well, I guess we know which door it is, you know? So he, in a way he solves a problem but as the as a particular archetype, you know. Okay, okay. okay. If we ask him which door is the safe door, right? Well, then he'll lie and say it's the other one. Uh, or is it the other way around? I don't know. Time's oh. up, man. All right, all right, wait, wait. I have a question. What is the point in having a door that has a horrible death behind it, huh? Get your hands off me. What does that achieve? What are you doing? I mean, what is the purpose of your life? Just to be hey, a pain? Don't touch me there. Only my girlfriend touches me there. Whoa! Once we start talking about Tenth Kingdom and indeed the, the the fairy tales, you have to start talking about archetypes, really, because um, people are not there necessarily to be a hundred percent complex, rounded characters, and that's the pleasure of a group. Uh, you know, I, I much prefer uh, writing a story with four or five central characters, say, than I do with two, especially if it's a man and a woman, because the two tends to, you know, you tend to go down a certain road. The great thing about having someone like Tony is that. Tony doesn't have to uh, save the movie. Tony doesn't have to actually have a, you know, a 10-page speech where he talks about his pain. You know, that's not what he's there for. He's there as this sort of um, uh, grounding character who can, uh, who can express what some of the people are watching maybe, you know. I always imagined with Tony, it was like, the family's watching 10th kingdom and they're laughing and they're enjoying it. And somebody says, Hey dad, come in and watch it. And it's like, oh, I don't like all that stuff. you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then maybe, you know, no, there's somebody like you, some grumpy, miserable <laughs> middle-aged man who always complaining. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. I like it. You know, something like that. Yeah. Um, well, let's pivot into uh, sort of after the show had come out. Um, when it first aired in, in February of 2000, uh, what do you remember the reaction to it being? Um, I was really exhausted, um, uh, you know, because we'd been doing the post-production, you know, quite late into the whole thing. And I was away on vacation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was actually in, um, where was I, Caribbean? Oh, in, um, uh, in Antigua. 
and staying at this place, I uh, stayed in often. And they didn't even have, you know, there was no TV in the rooms or anything like that. But the guy who owned this place was Howard Hughes's pilot. And Howard Hughes, he'd flown Howard Hughes and he'd flown over this piece of land one day and he said, I'm going to buy this when uh, I retire. So he bought this piece of land because there was only one TV. So I was like, I've got to see this go out. But at the same time, when you went vacation, we met some people who we didn't know before. And I was like, look, I've got this TV show and it's going out tonight and I just want to watch the first 20 minutes. Is that okay? So we went up the hill and we sat with this guy and watched the first 20 minutes. And I thought, wow, you finally arrived. You know, the sun was going down outside. It was Caribbean island and I was like exhausted, but I was like, yeah, that's what it's like. And then the next day we got the initial ratings and it was just like, it's a disaster. You know, there were some Beach Boys um, miniseries that had gone out opposite us and even they'd got more ratings than us. And um, uh, there was general feeling that, and, and here's where the length of it is a disaster because if it was just one night, it's over, or two nights, it's over. But as far as NBC were concerned, you know, they were taking a pasting in Sweeps Week, you know, um, uh, with this show. And what had happened just before that was um, a guy called Garth Ancia had uh, become the new head of whatever, I don't know, head of drama or something at NBC. And he had made a public statement um, when he took on the job about the current projects. And he'd said, um, uh, had it been me, I would not have uh, commissioned a 10-hour fairy tale series. And mm. the press pounced on that long before the series came out. So there were already feelings that, you know, um, the new you know head of drama was trying to distance himself from this series. And there's nothing more disastrous than that. I, I was asked to go to um, a press conference with the actors uh, uh, and flew out literally like for three days, four days, I think, just 6,000 miles, you know, bang. And we got through the press conference and it got to like, it was an hour long. It got to about 48 minutes. And I thought, nobody is actually going to ask me a question. I'm going to have flown here all the way and gone back and, you know, like that. But the whole press conference, and then they did, luckily. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, um, and I addressed this because apart from anything else, I think it's just, awful to to kind of protect yourself by suggesting that you know something from the previous regime if you like uh, uh is not good so there was a lot of those questions well it seems like you know they're disowning this series so uh, i was very troubled by that but i still thought well you know i've been there before and we'll see maybe the audiences will love it but anyway, uh, so the first episode went out. Um, uh, the ratings were not disastrous, but they were poor compared to what they expected for a you know show of that size. And they were particularly worried for the rest. And so I was just in utter despair and misery, you know, like you can only be when you get that kind of news. And I thought the show was so good as well. I was, It wasn't like, you know, one of those things which you occasionally get in where you think, well, maybe it's not good. I just thought, oh, it's great. I couldn't understand it. And very kind of depressed and came back from vacation. And then um, the producer, the British producer phoned me up and said something really interesting is happening. He said, um, this person from the uh, NBC publicity department has contacted me to say that they're having this unprecedented level of support 
um, uh, on uh, the internet, on you mm-hmm. know, people uh, writing about the show. And this was after we had had a number of reviews. There were a few good reviews. A few people really got it and liked it. But mainly there was this response of like, why did it, you know, they just picked up the story and ran with it. And, and I felt um, actually kind of willfully refused to see the complexity of the series and instead was sort of dismissing it for something it, it, it wasn't really. Anyway, um, uh, but we got this response and then um, it got sent through several hundred pages of messages sent to NBC just saying the complete opposite. And that was the first time I thought, okay, well, we're, luckily we're moving into an age where you know the initial theatrical release of a film or the initial showing on TV of something is not the be-all and end-all. It used to be that, and then it used to just vanish. Um, but um, that was the beginning of something quite different, and I then um, I subsequently began to discover all the fan sites that had come up around the series, mm-hmm. um, the DVD sales, um, and indeed all the, the VHS and everything else that, that they had were fantastic, and it's become something else there's a fantastic fan club for the series called the 10th kingdom connection and once a year people watch it all around the world in their different time things but you have to watch one episode every you know day of the five days and then at the end of it everybody comes online and um, i talk for a couple of hours with people just about their questions about the show and it is so thrilling you know 20 years on to realize that um people have this immense passion and are passing it on, you know, to their children and their grandchildren as well. So I, I, I moved full circle from a kind of deep despair that I, you know, made a big mistake and hadn't got it right. And the series was just bad to feeling that probably of all the things I've ever done, I'll never do something which has such an emotional um, connection for people. Um, so I, I, that, that's very pleasing to me and it still seems to, have a vitality. And as I said, I think, although, of course, you know, there's been a massive um, advancement in effects, the effects were done at a reasonably good level. The locations and everything else is at a, a very, very high level. So I think it will sort of survive. And I'm, I'm you know, I'm just tremendously grateful that that people do seem to to love it. And it now has a sort of, it's got that strange reputation where, you know, some people know it, some people don't, but it, it, it gets a very good word of mouth. And, um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm just feel very privileged to have had such great people, you know, mm-hmm. help, help me make something. You know, in, in 2017, you would actually put together a, a petition with Scott Cohen to get a sequel made. Um, but what was the reason for that? What was the reason around the timing for that? After the show uh, in air, air initially, as far as NBC were concerned, it was not a success. They simply mm-hmm. felt the show was too expensive. It was too much of a risk at 10 hours. So they weren't going to do another 10 hours. They weren't going to do what I had imagined the series initially to be like a standalone miniseries, but then we could primarily explore different kingdoms and you know kind of refresh it with the same characters and, and maybe produce you know, one miniseries like that every couple of years or something like that. And I had ambitious plans for that. But it became obvious that NBC weren't going to do that. Um, uh, And then 
uh, I was approached probably about two years afterwards um, by Robert Helming, who said, uh, the American producer, who said, look, there's a chance of doing it. I think it was on Showtime. Um, I have to be real with you. We won't have anything like the budget. You won't be able to get the original actors, which was even more of an issue for me. And I could see where we're going. Um, but much as I, you know, I can't tell you how much I would have loved to have done part two and part three and part four. And to sort of say no to that was not an easy decision for me. Mm-hmm. But if it really was a question of the show gets completely recast, we shoot it in, I don't know, Canada rather than Europe or something. You know, we've got one castle. It's going to be interiors. It's going to be, you know, two minutes, 30 seconds of magical effects every hour or something like that. I just felt there was a real danger that we would dilute and and spoil what we had. So I said no to that. Um, But I did sort of leave my torpedo in the original series, which is it ends with... (laughs) with uh, Virginia saying, well, that's the end of the first book, you know, of the Tenth yep, Kingdom, yep. because that's about the only power you have as a writer. You, know, <laughs> you can say like, all right, I'm going to tell them there's going to be more. So that, of course, for the people who love the series, was, um, you know, that was like a red rag. They were like saying, well, where is that more? And they kept going on. So um, I always knew there was more. I mean, there I have probably hundreds of pages of, of, of stuff for, you know, idea, either ideas that weren't used in the first series or thoughts for um, uh, how the story of the Nine Kingdoms would develop. Um, and uh, uh, I always said I was open to doing this. Um, we eventually decided to go back. Um, uh, there was no chance really of doing it with Hallmark and NBC because of just the way it was set up. But then... Uh, Robert Helmy died, uh, uh, Hallmark was uh, sold to Sonar, and I felt there might be a chance to um, uh, get the sequel made um, because they inherited the Hallmark library. And uh, 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 Scott's been very active in this and was really pushing us, and so we've been in to pitch, I don't know, three, four, five times, always to a different head of drama at Sonar. <laughs> they change. That's it. That's sort of good news and the bad news but with, with, with pitching. The bad news is if somebody loves your series, you can guarantee that they won't be in the job next time you go back. But if they hate your series, they won't be in the job next time you go back. So you can pitch to someone else. Anyway, we've got that kind of level, but we were always um, uh, suffering from the problem that you would go back to the point, well, it went out on NBC and it wasn't a ratings hit, right? So it's one thing to say 20 years ago, this was a huge series. We want to make a sequel. It's quite another to steer people through. Okay, look, it wasn't a success on its initial airing, but look how well it did in DVD sales. Look how, you know, how many fans still love it after all these years. So that's when we started to try and put that all together as a package and to show, um, the you know commissioning editors and uh, producers at Sonar and other places that look there's a real groundswell and I think what's what's happened with other series which again is a very interesting kind of aspect of, of this modern age is that if you have a hundred thousand people who are very active and really love something and they all bombard you know a, a TV station at the same time then it's hard to ignore them you know, or hard to ignore the fact that if you did make a series, those hundred thousand people would immediately tell ten other people. You know, you must watch this; it's really good. Um, many of the 
uh, fans have said to me, why can't you just write um, uh, a novel sequel, you know, to the um, uh, series? And indeed, I've suggested that at pitch meeting. I've said, all right, I can see you're, you're not sure about doing this series. Why not uh, let me just write a novel? Trouble is they hold those rights. And w- oh, okay. what you have with a company like that, which is very common and unbelievably frustrating for a creative person, is they say, we're not really sure. We've got this amazing library of Hallmark things. We recognize Tenth Kingdom, um, but we're not sure we want to make it as a series. So you go, okay, that's fine. Will you let us take it somewhere else? And let's see if we can get it set up. And then, you know, they will buy it off you. Or something. And they go, hmm, no, we don't want to let go of it. <laughs> right. Because, of course, they would look ridiculous. You know, uh, if if somebody else, you know, took over the series and and it was and they would get fired because they were the dumb schmucks who let go of it. So you get stuck in that horrible place where they're not going to make it, but they don't want you to do anything with it. So they won't even release the novel rights to me because I said, let me publish this novel. There's lots of fans. You know, if it goes high, then you know that that will be a, a, a and also i can show you what a cv series way so we've by no means given up uh, there are always changes in personnel um and uh, scott and i have had a fantastic idea i think for how to remain true to the original series but to you know really refresh it in a generational way um so never say never but um it is it's a very difficult position we're in at the moment and i think it all stems to be honest from the fact that the initial ratings for the series were not high enough so it it occupies a kind of cult status for some people but not you know not quite enough to make them confident about doing what would be you know very expensive Mm -hmm. tv series to do well, I mean, the ratings have a, 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 I guess, a legacy of some kind for for people who are still worried about broadcast ratings. But what is the the thing that makes those tenth connection people, the fans? What what makes them sort of hang on to the series and never forget, yeah. continue to do the the, yeah. the watch every year? Yeah, it's what I would call the sort of um, Tutankhamun's tomb syn- syndrome, which is that. When just before they discovered uh, Tutankhamun's tomb, the the Valley of the Kings mm-hmm. had been strip mined. There was nothing left there. Everything had been robbed for you know thousands and thousands of years, and there was a sense in which you couldn't make any more major discoveries there. And then they found in the rubble next to one of the you know that the rubble had been cleared from excavating uh, a one pyramid was the greatest you know discovery of all time. And I often feel that um, television and film is like that, in that, for instance, you say, okay, I want to make a film about a serial killer, right? Now, so many people have done it that my initial reaction, if you tell me that, is, oh, please, no, no, no. And yet, it's possible with all the bad films and all the bad TV that's been made to go there and come out of it with seven or come out of it with Silence of the Lambs or come out of it with something which is gives everything that people want, but somehow it's a totally fresh thing and you can feel its freshness. That's that's kind of an indefinable thing. You know, you can't really teach that in a, in a writing course, but it's absolutely what I look for and what I try and create in my own work. And I think that... If I said, oh, it's a series about, you know, fairy tales, 
sort of half set in our world and half set in another world. There's nothing about that. that sounds exciting. Oh, and you see the descendants of, you know, a fairy story character. Well, maybe, but, you know, not so interesting. It's been done, it's been done, it's been done to death. And yet there's something that even 20 years on with, you know, a lot of people doing series like, you know, Once and uh, Grimm and, you know, all those other things, there's still nothing quite like it. I think there's nothing quite like it when we were talking earlier about um, mixing the very serious with the very stupid, you know, which is kind of my trademark. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's there's not anything to my eye out there that that's just, well, Tenth Kingdom's just like this and just like that, just like that. And um, I did another series called Traffic, which was about the uh, world heroin trade and subsequently made into a, 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 a movie. And I felt a similar thing about that. Is that I'm not entirely sure why. I'm not saying it's the best thing ever, but it just it was possible to say something about drugs in a way that hadn't been said before. So it's like some twist of the wheel, really. And uh, Tenth Kingdom gives you what you expect, I think, in terms of the characters, but not in the way you expect them. You know, it, it, it gives you a resolution of a story that you're familiar with, but at the same time, the story it actually tells, I, I, I think, is fresh and, and different. Very hard to describe these things, but there's something about that. Um, and that's, you know, I could say that not kind of bragging about it and say that because that's what people say to me. They say, I've watched all these. I love fantasy series, you know, but I always come back yeah. to Ted's Kingdom because there's just something perhaps tonally more than anything else, which they just they like and they, they feel is is different. Mm hmm. Well, I mean, it, it's it's a great series, and I'm one of those people who are, you know, still watching it. And when you do the the rewatch this year, I'll be watching it right alongside uh, everyone else, uh, definitely. Fantastic. And uh, I mean, fingers crossed for a sequel one day. Like that would be an amazing thing. So. Yes, absolutely. And these things yeah. have happened and happen more frequently now than ever before. And I think that's for everything you know that people complain about this immense fragmentation of our. Uh, our media world um, and drama world. At the same time, it's allowed programs that wouldn't have been mainstream enough to survive and to come back. And, you know, I, I, I truly believe this is a golden age of television, partly because the golden age of television from before has not been forgotten. It can be incorporated. And in a world where everything is so samey, in a way, there's quite a cachet for someone to love records from you know a different decade or tv from a different decade or movies that no one else is watching you know i i think these these things are going to be preserved and may you know um uh, nothing would give me greater pleasure than to give people 10th kingdom too <laughs> well with that uh simon moore thank you so much for your time it's been a real pleasure speaking with you today and a great pleasure talking to you thank you very much and that's the podcast. In our next episode, we'll be speaking with the man, the myth, the legend, Scott Cohen, about his role as Wolf. Thanks for listening and stay tuned until then.